Well, um, I want to thank uh, people prayed for me. Lots of people said, I knew you were preaching. I prayed for you. And uh, encouragement. A couple people said, you know, they, they like when I preach. And, and I, I said, thank you for that. That, that type of encouragement is, it goes a long way with preachers when you pull on them. And so I appreciate all your prayers. Um, if you're here today, uh, the Lord has drawn you to hear a word that if you allow, it's going to change your, your life. Um, it's a serious word for serious times. It's not that I enjoy bringing this type of word or would prefer to, but I've been assigned to. The Bible says, let not many of you become teachers because you receive a stricter judgment. And the reason is, when uh, you become somebody who's going to stand up and claim to speak for God, you can influence people one way or the other, and you're accountable for what you say. So God makes it very clear. Don't stand up here unless you're willing to say what I'm saying. Can you say amen? amen. And uh, one thing, thing I endeavor to do is to, to preach the truth to you. I have some sobering stuff in the beginning and some stuff you're going to have to wake up your mind early in the day to understand. And I'll pray that school teacher anointing will come on me to teach you a little bit. And, and then I've got some preaching for you later. Are you ready to receive the word? Amen. Alex, if you can... President George Washington on April 30th, 1789, delivered his famous inaugural address to both houses of Congress. He had just taken the oath of office on the balcony of Federal Hall in New York City with his hand upon a Bible open to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Here are his words. April 30th, 1789. Such being the impressions under which I have in obedience to the public summons repaired to the present station, it would be peculiarly improper to omit in this first official act my fervent supplications to that almighty being who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nations whose providential aid can supply every human defect, that his benediction may consecrate to the liberties and happiness of the people of the United States a government instituted by themselves for these essential purposes and may enable every instrument employed in its administration to execute with success the functions allotted to his charge. George Washington, when he was sworn in, the very first thing he said is, the first official act we must do is recognize God. Can you say amen? amen? He said, in tendering this homage to the great author of every public and private good, I assure myself that it expresses your sentiments not less than mine own, nor those of my fellow citizens at large less than either. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Once again, no people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men 
more than the people of the United States. This is our first president. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. And in the important revolution just accomplished in the system of the United Government, the tranquil deliberations and voluntary consent of so many distinct communities from which the event has resulted cannot be compared with the means by which most governments have been established without some return of pious gratitude, along with a humble anticipation of the future blessings which then past seemed to presage. Let me explain to you what he's saying. He goes, look, there has been no government that has come together like this government. And you can't ignore the working of God here. That's what he's saying. He's saying we need to pause and recognize all that has happened is clearly from God. The fact that this nation was ever even birthed. And he said, in light of that, what is God going to do? He said, we have to humbly look to the future about how much blessing God is going to ordain on this nation. Look what he says here. He, he, he says, compared with the means by which most governments have been established, without some return of pious gratitude, watch, along with a humble anticipation of the future blessings. He's saying, in light of what God has done already, clearly God has something in mind for this nation. It's our first president, President George Washington. He says, these reflections arising out of the present crisis have forced themselves too strongly on my mind to be suppressed. This is our president. He's saying, I cannot keep silent about what God has done and is doing. I can't suppress myself from speaking forth what God is saying. See, he said, they're so suppressed. They're, they're forced themselves so strongly on my mind. I can't suppress them. I must speak about what God has done and what God will do. You will join me, I trust, in thinking that there are none under the influence of which the proceedings of a new and free government can more auspiciously commence. He's saying everybody acknowledges that clearly God's involved. And then he says, we ought to be no less persuaded, watch this now, that the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. And since the preservation of sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the republic model of government are justly considered as deeply, perhaps finally staked of the experiment. Here's what he said. He goes, you know what? There's a lot of people that are real excited about the republic because remember, the Revolutionary War just happened and they had thrown off the tyranny of the king and they had set up a republic. And so there were a lot of people that were very excited about the republic. And he said, I want to remind you that the republic is good, but the republic without God is not good. The republic in and of itself is not the answer. The republic with God's blessing on it is the answer. And he said this. He said, we ought to be persuaded that the smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards God. George Washington. The very first thing that he said. The very first act. The very first thing he warned us. He said then here, I shall take my present leave, but not without resorting once more to the benign parent of the human race in humble supplication that since he has been pleased to favor the American people with opportunities for deliberating in perfect tranquility and dispositions for deciding with unparalleled unanimity of a, on a form of government for the security of their union and the advancement of their happiness. So his divine blessings may be equally conspicuous in the enlarged views the temperate consultations and the wise measures on which the success of the government must depend on worshiping 
and acknowledging God. George Washington, April 30th, 1789. It's important to know that George Washington had his hand on the Bible when he said these things open to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Many of you familiar with this. Deuteronomy chapter 28 starts out, Now it shall come to pass. That means it will happen. Are you hearing me? He said, it's going to happen. It's the word of the Lord. It shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. How many know that's happened? It's our first president with his hand on the scripture. He goes on and lists and defines the source and what those blessings look like. And we've experienced them all. All of them. But then he says in verse 15, but it shall come to pass. Everyone say it shall come to pass. If you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And he goes on and lists them all. And a lot of them we are seeing. Can you pull up that picture of that church, please? This is a church in New York City called St. Paul's Cathedral. Now, if you don't know where I'm going, God's about to blow your mind right now, so pay attention. Some of you know where I'm going. George Washington, on the balcony with his hand on the Bible, said the words that he just said, went downstairs and led both houses of Congress two blocks to this church where they walk the grounds and dedicated the land of the United States to God. It was a public prayer meeting. They asked everybody to take the hour off between 9 and 10 of work and to come. And so thousands of people came on this particular ground surrounding this church, St. Paul's Cathedral, and they prayed and dedicated this land, this church, and the land around it and this country to God. Now, in 1789, New York was the capital for two years. That's why George Washington was there. This church, two blocks down the road, and the lands that they walked are ground zero. Put up the next picture, please. That's the top of the church in front of the Twin Towers. Let that sink in for a second. It is no coincidence that that land was the land that God removed his protection from. It's not a coincidence. The very land where George Washington dedicated and said, if we follow God, this nation will be blessed above all others, is the very land that God allowed to be attacked because clearly our nation has turned away from following God. We can stick our head in the sand and say, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. But I promise you this, I'm going to preach the truth to you. The truth sets you free. Those twin towers came down. Look how close they are to that church. 
Every building in a, in, a, in a huge radius around there fell. The church stands. The church is still there. There was a big sycamore tree that I'm not even going to get into and rock your world with that right now. That's another message. But there was a big sycamore tree that stood there and took the brunt of the towers when it fell. And so when every other building was leveled, the church actually stood. I believe is a sign that God has not given up. But I want you to see what happened after 9-11. We didn't repent. In fact, watch this now. We built another tower. It's been done before. Are you guys understanding what I'm saying? Are you sure? Tower of Babel. It's been done before. There's been a tower. We will rebuild, the people said, in a defiant attitude. The attitude should have been, we will repent. Clearly, that's a sign from God. Judgment on the nation. Now, I want you to understand something. In the days of Israel, God would deal with Israel the same way. When they had rejected him and were going after other gods and idols in their life, then what would happen would be, God would allow a foreign enemy to have a measured invasion into their homeland. And then he would reestablish the boundary and there would be a period of time when the people had an opportunity to repent. And if they repented, God would turn away judgment. And if they did not repent, bigger judgment came. Now, I realize no one wants to hear this, but the Bible says it shall come to pass. If you... Obey the Lord, good things happen. If you don't obey the Lord, bad things happen. We, we have not repented as a nation. I remember when Katrina hit. After everything was done, the first thing that opened up was the sex houses again. No repentance over judgment whatsoever. No reflection on how we are supposed to live. And this nation that we're living in right now is quickly trying to erase every form of acknowledging God. And I remind you of the words of George Washington, where he said, we ought to be no less persuaded the smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards God. Listen, I want you to understand what was going on. George Washington, president, prophesied with his hand on the Bible. He prophesied. He basically said this, God will not smile in favor of the United States if we disregard him. And the success of this newly formed republic depends on the nation's pursuit and worship of God. You see, God spoke through him. And sometime later, that very land came crashing down in a dramatic way that we all saw. David Wilkerson, a prophet who went home with the Lord 2011, one of the most respected men of God, you ever heard of the cross and the switchblade? That was David Wilkerson. The Bible said a, a tree is known by his fruit. And uh, I was in Africa on the top of a mountain and they had Teen Challenge there. It's amazing the fruit of the ministry of, of that man. He was a man of God. I put, I put on YouTube every day and watch sermons of him. And, and, I, and I love it because I, I know that he was a man of God. And I know when I listen to it that I'm hearing the word of, uh, from heaven. He said this before he died. Soon, very soon, an economic nightmare will explode into reality. What frightful news it will be. And he quotes Jeremiah. There's a, prop, there's a prophecy in Jeremiah that most scholars believe refers to the United States. And he said, Oh, thou that dwellest upon many waters, abundant in treasures, thine end is come. 
and the measure of thy covetousness. America is about to face, David Wilkerson, a time of mass hysteria as banks close and financial institutions crumble and our economy spins totally out of control. Gold and silver will also lose their value. The Bible says they shall cast their silver in the streets and their gold shall be removed. Their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They shall not satisfy their souls, neither fill their bowels, meaning food, because it is a, it is a stumbling block of their iniquity. The chaos that cannot be the chaos that's coming cannot be stopped by our government. Ezekiel warned, "The hands of the people of the land shall be troubled. I will do unto them after their way, and according to their deserts, I will judge them." These prophecies once again reveal God's judgmental decrees to wicked nations. Scoff if you choose, this is David Wilkerson, but the underlying fears about a collapse will soon become a tragic reality. Numerous cracks will appear in our fragile prosperity, and soon even the most pessimistic will know in their hearts that a total collapse is certain. Senators and congressmen will sit in stunned silence as they realize no one can stop the tailspin into chaos. Business, political, and economic leaders will be terrorized by its suddenness and its far-reaching effects. Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then I will stretch out mine hand upon it and will break the staff of the bread therein, will send famine upon it, and will cut off man and beast from it. The great holocaust that follows an economic collapse in America will come, and the enemy will make his move when we are weak and helpless. Now, lest you disregard what I'm saying, I want you to know that in the year 70 AD, when Israel was overrun by the Roman Empire, there were 60 prophets who stood on the wall prophesying to the people that God would not allow the city to be destroyed. And all 60 of them died with everybody else that stayed there when the Roman Empire came and completely wiped out Israel off the face of the map. From 70 AD to 1948, there was no nation of Israel. People used to look in the Bible and they'd say, see, the Bible can't be true because the Bible says there's an Israel and Israel doesn't exist. It hasn't existed nearly 2,000 years. Lo and behold, 1948, what does God do? He calls the Jews back and reestablishes the nation of Israel, which tells you how, uh, how in the end times we are because he's done that. Because the end time stuff has to deal with Israel. There will be a point where God has, has done with the Gentiles. It's the time that the Gentiles are done. And then he will graft back in Jacob. It's called Jacob's Troubles. And there'll be seven years. Many of you know this. Seven years as the tribulation. Prophesied by the Apostle John. Who, you know, leaned on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. So uh, my point in saying that is that joker knew Jesus and had some authority. And he wrote about this in the book of Revelations. He said, this is what's going to happen in the end times. And we're beginning to see those things unfold. Jeremiah 14, 14 says, And the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them, and they prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing in the deceit of their heart. Let me explain. Jeremiah was raised up as a prophet to the nation of Israel when they were rejecting God very much like the United States is today. And this prophet warned the nation. And the other prophet said, no, 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 God's not saying that. God's saying peace and safety and prosperity. Everybody's going to be blessed and happy. That's the message that we like. And Jeremiah was the weeping prophet because he weeped over the nation. He said, no. He said, judgment is coming and this entire nation is going to be carried away. In the, for 70 years, you're going to be in captivity. And that's exactly what happened. The Babylonians came, they overran Israel, they took all those people back to Babylonia, and they were there 70 years. That 70-year period was the time that Daniel, the prophet, was raised up. 
Daniel, most people believe, prayed when he was praying all those times, three times a day, for the restoration of the nation of Israel. It was Daniel that most scholars believe towards the end of his life when he took the Bible, when he took the Old Testament scrolls and he brought it to a new king, King Cyrus of the Persian Empire who took over the Babylonian Empire and he showed him in the scriptures where the Bible had his name written down hundreds of years before he was born and said, this is why you exist, Cyrus, to let the Jews go. And after 70 years, as Jeremiah prophesied, the Jews returned from their exile And they went back and rebuilt the meeting place of God. Understand there are those that are prophesying peace and safety and prosperity. And that definitely resonates with people. Because people don't want to hear what it is that I'm saying. But I am telling you the truth. The Bible says it shall come to pass. George Washington prophesying over the Bible. If you turn away from God, he will stop smiling on you. You cannot disregard him. Are you hearing me? Understand the times that we live in. Jesus said, you know, how is it that you can look at the sky and you know what the weather's going to be like, but you can't discern the sign of the times? How many know what I'm telling you is the truth? I would love to go, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Those very words of David Jeremiah when he talks about cracks in the prosperity. Don't tell me that that hasn't happened. Unless you think David Jeremiah, or uh, excuse me, David Wilkerson was some uh, uh, crack crackpot. Go on YouTube and pull up his 1973 prophecy. David Wilkerson, 1973. My mom was watching it just recently, and here's what it says. He began to prophesy that the IRS would be used in a tool of the enemy to try to persecute nonprofit status groups. 1973, David Wilkerson. It's out there on the internet. My mom said she was reading it. She started getting goosebumps because he began to prophesy way back then everything that we're experiencing. And that guy said, there's an economic collapse coming. Listen, I have to ask you a question. Will you still love him when there's no food? Because we have to ask ourselves that. I'm going somewhere with this. I'm going to encourage you, but I want you to understand where we are. These prophets that uh, Jeremiah spoke to, what were they prophesying? What vision were they prophesying? Peace, safety, prosperity. God's bringing blessing and not judgment. Does any of this sound familiar? That's alive and well in the United States. Pulpits everywhere. Turn on the TV. God's not bringing judgment. He's bringing blessing. He wants your life to be great. Jeremiah was raised up to prophesy to them the truth that because of their rejection of God and their worship of other gods, their idols, they're going into captivity, and that's exactly what happened. The same thing goes on today. God has clearly begun to judge this nation. Can you say amen? Remember the prophetic warning of George Washington with his hand laid across the words of Deuteronomy 28 and the words of the Bible themselves. Both the blessing and the cursing prophesied began with the same words, it shall come to pass, meaning it will happen. And consider the word of the Lord in the book of Galatians. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. A man or men or a nation will reap what they sow. The word declares that in the last days, men will seek preachers to preach to them a message that they want to hear and one that doesn't convict them. 2 Timothy 4.32 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they shall heap to themselves teachers in accordance with their own lusts. How many see this happening? Whole-scale denominations moving away from what the Bible says because we'd rather make people feel comfortable in their sin. 
Let not many become teachers, the Bible says. You can't change the scriptures. So what's happened is a whole scale part of the church has decided to look to the culture to define what's right and wrong. And, you know, I was talking to Pastor Otis about this the other night, and, I, and forgive me if, if you think differently than me, but I have to say this. It blows my mind that anybody would ever look to the culture of the world on how to do church. I mean, we, we got entire churches that are built on, let's study what, we'll study what COs and stuff are doing so we can fill up. Well, sure, you can fill up, but is anybody getting saved? Is the cross being preached? Let me tell you something. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of salvation unto men who believe. I want you to hear me right now. Listen, stay with me and hear what I'm saying, okay? The cross is all we need. We don't need to look for the culture of the world and how to have a relationship with God or how to, you know, tweak arms and get people to come and, and it be, because what happens is they never change. What we need is the message of the cross. Through the foolishness of preaching, can you say amen? Through the foolishness of preaching and preaching what? Preaching that Jesus Christ came, lived a sinless life, and then died on the cross in our place for our sins, and three days later was, was raised from the dead. And because of that, our sins can be forgiven and we can be saved. That is the message that whole-scale people perishing need. Instead of warning God's people to be clothed with intimacy, to tear down their idols and humble themselves and repent, the cry of the land instead is not a cry at all but a diluted, watered-down, humanistic, crossless, self-centered message which serves to placate people's genuine fears and dull the conviction of the Holy Ghost, shun reverence, and ultimately leave people unchanged by the cross and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Itchy ears, the Bible calls it. It isn't any wonder that God says, let not many become teachers. The temptation to dilute the message of the gospel is at the door of every pastor. You need to hear me because you need to have mercy and you need to pray for pastors. The temptation to dilute the message of the gospel is at the door of every pastor. Because you recognize if you speak the truth, some will be offended. Um, years ago, I, uh, I was in real estate for a little while. A very brief time. And some people are really good at that. I found out I'm not very good at sales. Because um, I think sometimes when you sell stuff, you've got to dress it up a little bit. Can you say amen? Um. I'm very comfortable with the truth of the gospel. And then what you do with it or what somebody does with it is between them and God. But if you feel differently than that, you can't ever stand in a pulpit because the temptation to tell somebody, no, no, you're okay with God when the Bible clearly says they're not, it's going to be there. And we have entire denominations changing biblical doctrine in order to make people feel better. And the worst part about that is, is they've taken out the cross. We sing today so much about the cross. Listen, I can barely talk about it without it affecting me on an emotional level. His nail-scarred hands and his nail-scarred feet, that crown of thorns, you understand, they whipped him so much that his back was ripped open and you could see the internal organs inside of him. The Bible records his beard was ripped out. He was marred more than any other man that ever lived. That 
beautiful Savior naked and humble on the cross in our place is the only message that people need to hear. That's the only message that changes men's hearts. That's it. Nothing else can change a man's heart. There's one way. God made a way, and the way is through his son. When Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me, we enter through the revelation that on the cross, our sins were paid for. And when you meditate on that, it can't help but produce humility inside of you. It can't help but produce praise. I have to say this, and I don't mean this to be judgmental, but I, I just want you to think, just think about it for a second. Okay? Jesus was naked. It wasn't like the statues were. He was naked. He was naked and broken and beaten and bloody and, and exposed for us. And then sometimes we're like, well, I don't really want to worship God because like, that's not really on my personality. I, I just want to throw that out there, something to think about. <laughs> Shouldn't the cross produce a reverence in us? Isn't that what Good Friday is all about, is that we meditate on that day, on how he suffered in our place? And you see what's happened? Is we're looking to Starbucks on how to do church instead of the cross. We're looking at, well, what does the culture of the world say? And you can fill up, listen, I, you can fill up a building that way, absolutely. But you have to be comfortable with the message. And some will receive it and some won't. In fact, my Bible, when I read it, says, narrow is the way that leads to salvation, and there are very few that find it. Which should cause us all the more to recognize during the times that we live in, it's time to cut away every sin and to take off every weight that stops us from pursuing him. I want to talk about the weights for a second because the sin is obvious and I'm going to get to the sin. But so many things that for years we've been saying, you know, these things aren't really bad things, but you feel the Holy Spirit telling you you need to let it go because it's become an idol in your life. The season that you live in right now, you must deal with this stuff. Please look at me. Please listen to me. I realize it's uncomfortable in here. You have to deal with this stuff now. The times that are coming are not good. The only people that are going to survive the times that are coming and not become offended are people that know him. Now I want to say something, so I'm going to say it. Again, I don't say this in judgment, but there are, there are those of you here, you have no prayer life at all. You never meet with him. The only time that you have anything going on with God is when you come to church and somebody else who's met with God speaks to you. That's the very word that came forward today. Is You understand, they didn't want to go up the mountain. Moses, you go up for us. But they themselves didn't have a prayer life. I'm going to read this again, but Moses took himself outside of the camp so he would go meet with God. Jesus withdrew from the people so he could go meet with God. Listen to me. You must have a prayer life. You, you must meet with him. When Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, Matthew 7, verse 21, the charge was, I never knew you. That's the issue. When he sees you face to face, when you see him face to face, do you know him? 
See, for those that know him, there's no fear about that moment. You understand? Because you've been spending time with him your whole life. He's been the priority in your entire life. Your entire existence has been wrapped up around cultivating this relationship. And so when he flings the doors open and you see him face to face, you're not afraid because you know him. But in that moment, there are people that they'll say, Lord, Lord. And he said, I'm sorry, I don't know you. And only those people that I know can come in. And the only way to know him is through the cross, the wonderful cross. Do you understand why we sing now, your nail-scarred hands are beautiful. Your nail-scarred feet are beautiful. That cross is beautiful. Because without that cross, there's no way to be saved. That's the gospel. That's the message that men need. That's the message for all of mankind. And that's the message that quickly is being erased from our nation and even our churches. The temptation to dilute the message I said of the Gospels at the door of every pastor. How do you build a church and attract people when you're going to preach but you assume they don't want to hear? Pray for pastors and have mercy on shepherds. But you see, there lies the deception. So many water down or even change the message of, in fear of offending or losing people. There's a fear to preach sin, but sinners we are and forgiveness we need. We need the cross. The cross is precisely what is being removed from not just our culture and our country, but even our churches. But the cross changes everything. Without the cross, there's no good news. No gospel. Paul said he was not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God given in order to save men. What is the good news? That Jesus Christ paid for our sins, our griefs, our sorrows, our sicknesses in his own body with the torture and crucifixion of his own. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the cross, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. He Himself did it. Do you understand why we worship? That's why. He did it. He made a way. You understand, when He was on the cross, towards the very end of His life, He cried out, It's finished. Meaning everything that needed to be done so that we could be saved had taken place. And the Bible said at the moment that he died, there was a veil a foot thick in the temple which housed the Holy of Holies, the presence of God on earth. And it was ripped from the top to the bottom as about 20 feet high. And the Holy Spirit was let out. And the day of Pentecost came. And so the Spirit of God could come back on man because Jesus paid in his own blood for us to have relationship with him again. You remember Jesus said, don't go anywhere till you're clothed. You remember the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve when they sinned and the Spirit of God left them and their eyes were open and they saw that they were naked. And the day of Pentecost comes. Jesus. The Bible said Jesus is the one that sends the Holy Spirit. You know that when he was walking and John the Baptist saw him, he was like, that's the one that baptizes in the Holy Spirit right there. Jesus, Jesus paid for the price of his own blood. And, and he said, don't go anywhere until you're clothed. It's as if he's saying this, my little children, I will not leave you naked, but I will come and clothe you with my spirit and I'll pay the price myself. Do you understand why we're like your nail scarred hands are beautiful? Without your nail scarred hands and feet, without your crown of thorns, there's no way to be saved. Without the cross, we all perish. 
but because he made a way, oh, it produces such humility and adoration and worship in us. And when we spend time with him, we love him so much. And the more we spend time with him, the more we want to spend time with him, the more we want to tell everybody about him, the more we want to worship him, the more we want to see him face to face. Listen, I would just assume this whole thing get wrapped up. There's some people like, no, don't come, Jesus. Translation, I love the world. The Bible said he who loves the world and the things of the world, he doesn't know God. We need to lay aside every sin in every way. Let me talk about the sin for a second. Listen, there is a voice deceiving empty words that tells you that it's okay that you have this uh, secret sin going on and that God's not going to, he's going to be all right with it. And that's a lie. I want to tell you that that's a lie. Men, there's probably men in here. You've been struggling and you've been battling on the computer and you've been, and, and you've been into that type of stuff. There may be women in there. Listen, I want to tell you something. You have to get, you need to get free from that stuff. God's going to judge that stuff. If that becomes a residual sin in your life. It's going to take you right to hell. See, there's a voice that comes in. It's like, no, God will understand. Listen, he won't. And here's why. Because the cross makes freedom available. The Bible says where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And the spirit of the Lord came because Jesus died. Because Jesus died, he was able to send the Holy Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit has come, there's freedom available. Listen, here's what we need to do. Fast and pray and get in such a broken place where we can allow God to change us. Do you know when you pray, it changes you? It doesn't change God, it changes you. You understand? Oh, I got to plead, plead to God. I'm going to change his mind. God already knows what he's going to do. But when you pray, it changes you. Your whole existence, your whole identity has changed. Listen, I want to stand here as one who can tell you, no matter what you're struggling with, freedom is available to you. I Listen, I'm telling you, freedom was purchased at the cross. It is for freedom that he set you free. There's no sin that's overtaken you that's not common to man that he hasn't dealt with. Today, today is the day to deal with it. You have to make a decision that I'm, I'm cutting this stuff out of my life. And the weights, all the things that we have in our life that God is saying, it's time for you to give this up to me, the idols. That's the whole reason that Israel fell is because of idol worship. And, and we have them. I mean, we have things that are so important to us that have nothing to do with God have nothing to do with souls. And you're, maybe you're saved, but God, you know, the, God can't get you to do anything for his kingdom because we're so caught up in our idol. You know what I mean? Maybe it's hunting. Maybe it's golf. Maybe, you know, you're the big golfer and you, you read all the golf magazines and you're golfing every Saturday. You're losing your wife because you're on the golf course. You understand? That's an idol. Are you hearing me? We have to judge ourselves. What is God? Because I'm telling you, I know that God's been speaking to us. He's been speaking to me. I know he's been speaking to us about, you know, you got this thing in your life that for other people, maybe that's not a bad thing. But for you, you know, you watch too much football. You understand? You follow this team too closely and it's a weight that's keeping you from doing what I want you to do during the short time that we have before I come. What can be more glorious than winning souls? Amen. First Peter 2.24 again, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross that we having died to sins might live for righteousness. The days that we live in require the necessity of preaching the cross. 
Nothing else urges us to such personal and national humiliation. The cross requires every man to examine and see his own sin, and as such, humbles us and invites the presence of God, for he draws near to the humble but opposes the proud. It seems to be the natural dispensation of mankind to be proud, but a naked and suffering Savior dying in our place opens the door to humility, to fasting, to repentance. And consider how willing he was to take our place on the night of his betrayal. He took the cup and declared that he had earnestly looked forward to the hour that he now found himself in. Luke twenty-two fifteen says, Then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Just meditate on that for a moment. All the horror that was coming his way. And those gathered around him and he said, I have fervently waited for this hour. He went on to pray. He said, what should I say? Save me from this hour. But he said, this is the hour I've come for. I want you to see how willing he was. This is how much he loves us. He was, he was so willing on that day to take our place on the cross. He was fervently, fervently looking forward to this moment. On the night, the Bible said on the night he was betrayed, he took the cup. On the night, one of them who, who ate with him, one who, who walked with him and, and one of his friends, On the very night that he betrayed him, he said, I've earnestly looked forward to this hour. My favorite scripture in the Bible, Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, meaning us, endured the shame of the cross, despising the shame. The Lord, I've been, listen, this has been my favorite scripture for years and years. I've preached this all over and the Lord showed me something new about it this week. It's profound. He said he despised the shame. I used to think that the shameful death, that even though he despised it, he was still like willing to go through with it. And that's not what it means. The Lord showed me this week. It means when the shame came and tempted him to not do it, he despised the very mention of the fact that that shame would try to stop him from dying in our place. He said, I will freely identify with that shame. I despise even the notion that it would try to keep me from coming for those that I love. Do you understand now why we're like, your nail-scarred hands? Your nail-scarred feet? That cross? It's so beautiful. I was thinking during worship, I was like, I'm so grateful to my, my dad and my mom that, that they, they taught me about Jesus when I was young. I was thinking that. I was like, I'm so glad they told me. I was just caught up in worship and I was like, I'm so glad that someone told me about Jesus. Aren't you glad somebody told you about Jesus? Do you understand that there's no sin, that there's no sickness, that there's no grief, there's no sorrow that that cross hasn't dealt with? He's taken care of everything. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. and By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
This was written about 700 years before Jesus was even born. Describing what the atonement paid for. By his stripes were healed. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. His hands and his feet were pierced so that we could have peace with God. His back was ripped open when it talks about by his stripes were healed. It's about when they whipped him and it ripped open his back to the point that you could see internal organs on the inside because there were nine pieces of leather and on the end of them they had bones and metal and they hit him so many times and it ripped open his back so many times that you could literally look inside and see organs in his body and the Bible said when he took those stripes he paid for healing. And I didn't say this in the first service, a different crowd, but so those of you that are here, because I believe there's probably some that don't know that God still heals. I was in Africa preaching a crusade and these, and, and, and these women came up who were deaf and I laid my hands on them and I said, in the name of Jesus, be open and boom, their ears popped open and they could hear because I'm such a great man of faith. No, because healing was paid for by Christ through his suffering. Healing was available. And we wonder, well, why don't we see more of this stuff in the United States? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So where it's not preached, we don't see it. But you go to Africa and you preach it and the people believe it. Healing. I'll blow your mind. I cast out demons in Africa. In America, we think, well, you know, that's just a mind sickness. No, 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 no. It's a demon. And sometimes they have many of them. You're getting crazy. No, I'm, listen, I'm not. If you read the Bible, everything I'm saying is in the Bible. They take the little kids in Africa and they dedicate them to a witch doctor when they're born and the demons fill them. You understand? And then we come, they're 17 years old. We preach Jesus Christ saves in the cross and they walk an altar to get saved and the Holy Spirit comes and drives out the demons and they manifest. Just like in the movies. Only it's not scary because there's no creepy music. The creepy music just makes it scary. But when you're actually there, if you know Jesus, it's not scary. Jesus was like, I cast out demons with my finger. You know, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the demons with a word and healed all the sick. That's Jesus. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, still doing the same stuff that he did before. You know how I had so much faith to pray for those people who are deaf because I had just cast out five demons of this woman. You know, I was like, in the name of Jesus, come out. And they did. <laughs> One right after the other. You were there, you remember? I'm not making this up, right? Well, who else? Was anybody else in here that was with me? Dave. No, Dave's not here. You were, yeah, Jeannie was with me. You were with me. You remember? Raise your hand so they can see you. Let everything be established by two or three witnesses. So the demons come out. I walked away and I heard the Holy Spirit say that, you know what? The same Jesus that cast out those demons will, will open deaf ears. So it was easy for me to believe. So I was like, if I told the interpreter, tell them if anybody here is deaf, have uh, the people in the audience bring them up. And they brought them up and then Jesus opened their ears. Why? Because he died on a cross. You see, the enemy doesn't want the cross preached. Because the cross changes everything. 
You understand? That's the gospel. When we go into those areas in Africa where they've had villages, there was a village there, the very village where we planted a church in Invunamba. The village, the name of the village is, means fear him, meaning the demonic presence. You understand? And then we came into the village and we preached the gospel. And what happens? People are like, are you into like, um, you know, uh, spiritual warfare? The gospel is spiritual warfare. You understand? You come in an area that's dark and you start preaching Jesus and demons flee. If they're upstairs, they jump out windows. You understand that demons, Satan is terrified of Jesus. You understand that? We lay hold of that cross, allow that to break us and humble us. What it produces inside of us is when you get humble, then it attracts God. And when it attracts God and then Satan tries to come against you, he finds Jesus Christ standing in the same place where, where the enemy used to be, where there was a stronghold. And now Jesus is standing there and he's terrified of Jesus. See, what happens is when we keep all our weaknesses, our sins, and all this stuff in the dark, but we don't come meet with God and allow him to break us, then what happens is uh, the enemy is allowed to dwell in darkness. How many ever heard that, that scripture that said that you shall dwell in darkness, right? And he kept his angels, right, in the, the ones that rebelled, in darkness. You understand? We're thinking it's a literal darkness. It's a literal, and it's a spiritual darkness. And so what happens is any dark area in your life that you don't submit to God for the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is a place where you can find demonic oppression, See, but what happens is when you bring that stuff to Jesus and you let the cross minister to you and break you and you submit to him and what happens is you allow that humility of Christ to rise up inside of you, then the enemy comes against you in that area where he used to get you and now he finds Jesus standing there and the Bible says he comes one way and flees seven. He cannot get out of there fast enough because he is terrified of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? Please hear the words of the father to the older brother of the prodigal son. You all know that story. When he went out to talk to him, to convince him to come in because the younger brother has come home. And he says, all I have is yours. Tough times are coming, but the Lord has made a way at the cross. Grief, sorrows, sin, sickness have been dealt with. Peace with God is available. Consider that the Lord is protected and provided for his people during difficult times. A thousand may fall at your right side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you, says the Lord. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's only a shadow. He's redeemed you and called you by your name. And when you walk through fire, he's there walking with you. When you walk through the water, he will not abandon you. You will not be burned. You will not drown. He is faithful, and we can trust him to never leave us or forsake us. But it is time to make your relationship with the Lord the priority of your life. Please hang with me here for a second and feel the weight of what I'm saying. All these things are true, but it's time to make that relationship the priority in our life. We must pray. We must know him. Consider the unwise virgins who had no oil when the time came for it. A culture of intimacy with the Lord must be a personal priority in our lives and in our churches. We have to make time to know him. Individually and corporately. Moses, I said, went outside the camp to meet with God. And so, too, must we leave the hustle and bustle of our daily lives to find the solitude necessary to cultivate 
a relationship with the Lord. We must know God. We must hear from God. We must pursue his presence. Someday Jesus will ask a whole group of people to depart from him forever, the charge against them that they didn't know him. Please today see him naked, broken, dying, exposed on the cross for you. Do you see when we allow ourselves to meditate on the cross that it changes us? It humbles us. Broken of pride, we are able to receive all the Lord purchased for us and to unashamedly worship God with all our heart, all our strength, and all our mind. What's the answer for the times that we live in? The cross. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. When all the curses were coming on Egypt, the lights were still on in Goshen. God's going to take care of his people. But it may look differently than it has in the past. But you know what? You won't care. You won't care if you're meeting with him. Real quickly, Pastor Steve Ferrante. You all know Pastor Steve Ferrante. That's one of my favorite people in the entire universe. Sent me this last night. He says, there's a tremor reverberating through the enemy's camp. A fearful realization of time's culmination and the rising up of a consecrated group of believers who will not be intimidated, rocked by circumstances, or threatened into submission. Islam will not silence them. Communism 2.0 will not extinguish them. Materialism will not influence them. Calamity will embolden them. Persecution will expand them. And hell is threatened by their emergence. This is the church that sees herself rightly. The bride adorned in her wedding clothes of righteousness. This is the church America and the world needs. It's a church not intimidated by the larger numbers of the enemy because it has finally realized that the greater one truly resides within her. It is the church that has embraced the truth of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit working through her. It is a church emboldened with a heaven-sent love for the lost and a martyr's devotion to the Lord of all. This is the identity we are called to. The door is open for all who are willing to say, yes, I am fully committed to the kingdom of heaven regardless of the cost here on earth. This is the saved, sanctified, powerful, victorious church being birthed on the earth. A remnant that may not appeal to the flesh of humanity, but one which will create a hunger and thirst for heaven and an earth without any hope. Respond to the call and enter into the joy of the Lord. Pastor Steve. Now you know I love that guy. Listen. The cross dealt with any need that you have. And there's three specific things that we want to pray for. And I want, I want, I know we've gone a long time, but I want you to hear me on this, okay? Because we're preaching the cross, the Holy Spirit responds. He's attracted to that message. You understand? Because the cross is being preached, the Holy Spirit responds. Sometimes we, we think we've got to try to find another way, and we don't need to find another way. We just need to preach the cross, and it opens the door for God to move. That's the message that the Holy Spirit convicts in the hearts of men. There are three areas. If you're here and you've, you've never been born again, but today you're 
listening and you're hearing and you're like, I need to meet Jesus, then we're going to have a spot for you right here. But if you're here and you need to rededicate your life to the Lord, and listen, I'm telling you, I know that there's a group of people in here, you've been busy with all kinds of other stuff and God has been an afterthought in your life and that's not going to help you in the times that are coming. You need to be so clinging to Him that nothing moves you. You understand? And so today's a day where maybe we get that right. So that's this group, people that are being born again and people that are like, you know, Jesus, I, I've been kind of going through the motions and, and it's time that I make this my priority, this relationship with you. That's this group of people. The Bible said that Jesus, when he died on the cross, that he paid the price for grief and for sorrow. And so if you're here and you've, had, you've been carrying grief or you've been carrying any sorrow, for how many years it's been or however short time, how long it's been, you have something in your heart that Jesus paid for. Today, he wants to bring freedom to you. And we have some wonderful people that are going to um, pray with you here. Where are, are they still here? The Polans? Are you guys? Yeah, the Polans. You guys raise your hands. I don't know if you guys know. Keep your hands up so they can see you. I don't know if you guys know them. If you do know them, you'll know that they have a pastoral anointing all over them. And they're going to pray if you've been struggling in your mind at all. If you've had sorrows or griefs or you've had any type of stuff going on inside your mind, anxiety or, or depression or any of those type of things, the cross paid for all that. He bore our griefs and sorrows. He says, cast our cares on him because he cares for us. Isn't it good to know that God cares? That's a word for somebody. He cares. And we're going to pray for you. And because we preach the cross, the Holy Spirit is going to come help you in that area. And then we're going to pray for bodies to be healed. We prayed in the first service. Pastor Otis is going to be over here praying. And um, the Bible said these signs follow those who believe. They lay hands on the sick and the sick recover. And I've known him 15 years and he believes. (laughs) That was another thing when I was in Africa. When I went to lay hands on the sick, I was like, well, I didn't come 10,000 miles because I don't believe. (laughs) You know, at that moment, I felt like a qualified believer. (laughs) We're going to pray for you, and God's going to heal your body. Because of Him? No, but because of the cross. You understand? Because of the cross, healing was available. Because of the suffering of Jesus, by His wounds, we're going to sing that song again, by His wounds, we're healed. Physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He dealt with our spirit, he dealt with our soul, and he dealt with our bodies. It was a 100% complete atonement purchased by the blood of Jesus. And because we believe that and preach that today, the Holy Spirit will honor that with a demonstration of power. Paul said that he didn't come with a persuasive word, but he came with a demonstration of the power of the Spirit. Please understand, I feel no personal pressure for God to move. I know he wants to move because he sent his son. He he loves when people value the sacrifice of the cross. When When they avail themselves to what Jesus purchased, it's glorifying to God. So when we come to be healed because Jesus paid for it, when we come to deal with our emotional stuff because Jesus bore our griefs and sorrows, when we come to be saved because He took our sin in His body on the cross so that we can be saved, God is blessed and pleased. That's the only message that the church needs. We don't need all this fancy stuff that everybody's trying to do to try to, you know, convince people that they need to come be part of our club. We just need the cross. Can you say amen?